Okay? Let's get started. So welcome to Golden Beer Talks for August. It's uh, Tuesday, August 11th. It should be the second Tuesday of the month. I, I hope it is. And um, uh, this month's featured brewery is Golden City Brewery, just right over here at 12th and Cheyenne Street. And they were the first craft brewery opening in town that wasn't Coors. And um, they still, they have copyrighted or trademarked, I guess I'm not sure which, you know, the uh, uh, moniker, second largest brewery in Golden. So, um, and this month's beers are Honey Don't Be Sour, which is a very mild, sour beer, a nice beer for a, a sunny summer day. And then we've got their legendary red ale, which is a very good, uh, nice, malty red ale uh, that they've mon- uh, won multiple awards for. Um, and the sours are kind of an unusual beer. You know, uh, originally all of the sours were made uh, with wild yeast, so it just kind of happened, and sometimes they went wrong. Uh, it's become a little more uh, scientific, let's say, and a little more controlled with uh, sour beers. And there's quite a popular uh, popularity to sour beers right now, and I think this uh, Honey Don't Be Sour is a very nice example of a good summer beer. And just for your information, at Barrels and Bottles on Sunday, they're going to have a sour event, and they're going to have 14 barrels of sour on tap. So if you want to try a whole... And there's really a whole range of sours. There's lambics and, and so on and so forth. I could spend 20 minutes just going through the different sour beers. Um, so if you want to try a variety of them... Sunday at Barrels and Bottles, and um, I wanted to mention that we have Golden Beer Talk glasses, and they are $6 a glass, four for $20, and and, uh, Barb Warden, my wife, is right over there, prepared to sell everyone all of the beer glasses that you want, so long as it doesn't exceed eight, I'd say. And um, next month, we're going to have a person from the Fish and Wildlife Service speak to us on the Upper Colorado Endangered Fish Recovery Program. And just in case, is Melanie here tonight? Melanie is here tonight. So this is the speaker for August. Um, ah, sorry, for September. The speaker for August is sitting over here. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, Endangered Fish Recovery Program for the Upper Colorado River next month. And with that, I'll introduce Pamela, who's going to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jacob Smith. Thank you, Frank. All right. All right. Thank you, Beer Ambassador. Can we have a round of applause for our Beer Ambassador? Okay. I have just a few additional announcements to add to what Frank already said. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Radio Golden and Golden.com. So thanks to them. Also, um, in October, we are going to have some of you, many of you, remember that we had an auction with our um, world-famous auctioneer, Jim. Um, Jim Dale. We, <laughs> we will once again be auctioning off a very, very special um, table right in the front with a tablecloth and candles and all of the features that you uh, have grown to love when we do our auctions. It is our only fundraising that we do because we are very low 
uh, cost operation run by volunteers. Which brings me to my last announcement. We are run by volunteers, so please, everybody, before you leave, please bust your tables. It's just the right thing to do. <laughs> so with that, I would like to go ahead and introduce our speaker. Um, tonight's talk was cleverly named by myself, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, many of you know Jacob. Raise your hand if you already know him. Okay, so pretty much everybody, but I'm going to introduce him anyway because maybe I know some things about him that you don't know that I looked up on the internet today. Um, he was the 46th mayor of Golden, and prior to becoming mayor, he um, served on the Golden Historic Preservation Board and was on city council before that. He actually uh, graduated from Smoky Hill High School in Aurora. With, uh, with our very first Golden Beer Talk speaker, Adrian. I did not know that. And then he studied environmental science and then went on to get his master's degree in public policy. And um, he, has, he, he has a lot of things going on. One of the things he uh, does is he runs a business called State Political Maps. Um, and I believe he runs that out of his house, right? And you've been doing that for three or four years. I'm going to make this up a little bit. Um, Probably his most notable accomplishment to date was being a co-founder of Radio Golden. <laughs> um, that was a fabulous radio show that many of you probably listened to. Uh, he <laughs> and he is now the program director at Alliance for Sustainable Colorado. Um, he, and I, I can't introduce him without talking about his film projects. Jacob has just finished one film called 48 Hours in Baltimore. And he's got two other films underway. One is um, called Chasing Rabbits, and he has just one more day of shooting to do on this, which is this weekend. Nice. And then he is in production on a documentary that I'm personally really excited about, about the 2016 presidential election. So we should look forward to that. But he's not going to talk about any of that. He's actually going to talk about his experience working, for, um, working in the U.S. Senate for Senator Bernie Sanders um, as the Energy and Environment Policy Advisor. And I know Jacob has some pretty awesome stories, so let's hear them. Holy cow, this is a crowd. Um, when... When Pamela asked me to do this, and I said, yeah, I didn't think much about it. And then, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, Pamela and Barb both started harassing me about a description for the talk, which I hadn't thought about, and so I hadn't written. And I whipped something together really quickly, and then later realized I'd actually described more like three or four talks. So I asked Pamela if I could have an hour for each and take up three or four hours, and she said no. <laughs> so I've got... That's right. One's good. But, but I've, got, I've got a few th sort of topics I want to cover, and I think they're all related, and you'll tell me in the end if they really are or not. And I probably won't say enough about any of them, but I'll stick around as long as you all have questions or want to, have a, want to chat afterward. I'll start with, I'll start with Bernie Sanders. I, I joined his staff about two and a half years ago, and was there almost exactly two years. I, I went to D.C. from Golden specifically to work for him, basically doing energy and climate policy for him. And here's, a, here's what I can tell you about Bernie. I mean, you, I assume you all know Bernie or know of him. That might not have been true nine months ago, but it's probably true now. Senator from Vermont, independent, and is now running for president, uh, running for the Democratic nomination, in fact. 
here's some things I can tell you about Bernie. First of all, the man is truly a force of nature. That force of nature you see on TV that really is Bernie. And he is driven by a very deep sense of, of justice around economic inequality. So he mostly looks at the world through this lens of how are people with a lot of money taking advantage of everybody else. And I, I made the mistake, I'd been there about two weeks, and he asked me how it was going, and I, I said, I'm having a great time. And he said, Jacob, the planet's, the planet's collapsing, the middle class is falling apart, and you're having a great time here in my office. And he wasn't, he wasn't kidding. Like, Bernie is here on this earth to protect people who are being exploited by people who have more money than they do. And, and it, it, was, it, was a, it was a remarkable experience to work for somebody who is that focused and that uh, committed to this cause. And he has been committed to that cause for as long, uh, certainly the 40 years he's been involved in electoral politics and I think for some number of years before that. My notes will be easier to read if they're right side up, I think. The, I think it's interesting that he is, he's often viewed as an ideological extremist around that set of values and those issues. But it's also worth noting that he is much savvier, I think, politically than his reputation would suggest. And even more importantly, I think he's much more politically pragmatic than his reputation would suggest. And I, he, I think he cultivates that reputation, and yet at the very same time, in the end, he's a guy who wants to get stuff done for values and causes he believes in. So, f- for example, in the 113th Congress, which was the last Congress before this last election, he was the chair of the, this is back when the Democrats had the majority in the Senate, he was the chair of the Veterans Committee. And th- I mean, this, is, this is the guy known for his bombast and known for his, his extreme left-wing views, and yet he and John McCain were able to work out a deal that resulted in the passage of a, of a huge veterans bill. I think it passed in the Senate 97 to 3 and then passed in the House, signed into law by the President, that result, resulted in something like $20 billion going into the VA to fix a lot of the problems they were having to create community health centers that would provide access to veterans that didn't have it. It was this extraordinary accomplishment. And, and in a Senate, I'll talk about this in a little bit, in a place that essentially gets nothing done, Bernie Sanders and John McCain were able to get something done. So even though he's, he's the guy at the far edge of the spectrum, he's also willing, and this is part of why I like working for him, he's willing to make deals when he thinks it's actually going to do some good for the people he cares a lot about. He's also, I'll, I'll tell you this, he's also very disciplined in how he talks to the media. Most staffers on the Hill live in terror that their member is going to say something crazy or stupid, and then they have to go clean up the mess. <laughs> Most staffers live in that kind of state as though they had the Donald as their boss, even though it may be some other member, because members speak from the cuff and they often say things that they wish they hadn't. It, it, is, it is often the case that staffers on Bernie's staff wish he had made a, decision, a different decision about what to say, but in my experience, it's almost never the case that he doesn't say what he means to say. He's incredibly intentional about what he says. So when you hear him talking, you generally know that's what he actually means and what he actually believes. And part of what's so cool about watching his career, those of you who have followed his career know this, he first ran for office in, I think, 1971, ran for a state, I think he ran for governor in Vermont, and got ran under a party called the Liberty Union Party, a, a far-left party that could only exist in a place like Vermont. Won with, I think, three, or uh, didn't win, he, he got something like three and a half percent in that race. He ran again, two, 
I think, three more times for statewide office. Each time he got a little bit more, a little bit a slightly higher number of votes, but never got out of the single digits. I think the most he ever got was six or seven points. So he was basically, as a, as a candidate, he was a failure in four statewide races in Vermont. He went from that, from there, to winning re-election to the Senate three years ago with 71% of the vote. And even though Vermont has a reputation for being really liberal, it's not an undeserved reputation, that is not always, that really hasn't always been the case. It is historically much more conservative. In fact, Bernie's seat has never been held by a Democrat. Just something to ponder. It's always been held by an independent or a Republican. So Vermont is, is less liberal than its reputation, even though it's shifting. And it, Vermont has these strongholds of very, like, New Hampshire-like conservatism. And even in those places, you find extraordinary support for Bernie. People who will say, I don't really agree with him on anything, but I believe the guy, and I know he's fighting for, fighting for me, so I'm going to vote for him. And part of what's so remarkable is he's been saying the same things. His views on issues have basically been the same for those 40-plus years he's been in electoral politics. If you look at, if you read Outsider in the House, which he wrote after, I think, his second uh, re-election, or his first re-election to the U.S. Congress, or if you watch any of his old speeches, or look at any of the things he's been saying for 40-plus years, you could almost transpose them. You'd have to change some of the names and maybe some of the places where there are conflicts or wars and some of the names of of the corporations. But basically, basically he's been saying the same thing that was my Marco Rubio moment. <laughs> he's been saying the same thing for 40 years. And so what I think he's doing in the presidential race, what, what's driving his thinking about running for president is he saw, he experienced in a place like Vermont where he could lay out a set of values and principles and, and, and advocate aggressively and in an unrelenting fashion for those values and principles and basically say the same stuff for the entire time and slowly build a movement around those values. And I think, I don't know that he, I don't know what he can do in the presidential race because he's trying to do the thing he did in Vermont over 40 some years and do it nationally um, in a very compressed time frame. But it's not crazy, I don't think for, think, for him to think that if he focuses on economic issues, which is mostly what he does, and focuses on the way that the system is rigged to disadvantage people who are already disadvantaged, that he can generate some real political momentum. And he's certainly off to a, a very, you know, a very high traction start. I want to also, as a maybe as a segue, also say that his that integrity where. I don't know if he's unique, he's certainly rare, where you know that what he says he says because he believes it. That is incredibly hard to find among members of Congress. Mostly what they do, they have this little map. They look at the polls, they look at who their big donors are and what they want, and they look at what the voters in their state want, and then they look at what the party leadership wants. Unless they're like in the dissent, like in the Republican side, the dissenters, they look at what the, the sort of dissenting group wants, and they draw this little triangulation, quadrangulation, and that's the position they take. They're trying to figure out how to position themselves in relation to all those things. Bernie's not doing that. Bernie says the things he thinks and believes, and he's been doing it for 40-some years, and that it's, it's just a, it's a really cool thing to know, even if you don't believe the things he says or, or agree with them on those values, that he's actually saying the things he believes. It's not this exercise in how to look better or different or more appealing than the next guy over. So working on the Hill... I, I don't, I don't want to belabor this. I'm happy to talk about it more. It's a bizarre... It's down the, down the rabbit hole two or three times over. It's such a strange place. The, just really quickly, the, the Senate... Every senator has a Senate... Has a, 
an office in D.C. and then an office or, or typically multiple offices in the state. Like here, I think Senator Gardner has six or seven, and Senator Bennett has about the same number in the state. In Vermont, we have, or Bernie had uh, two, really two offices, but they have these two sets of offices, and an average office size might be 25 or so in the state. A really large state like California is going to have more um, and maybe 25 in the personal office. And if, they, if the member happens to be, this is on the Senate side, happens to be a committee chair, that might be another 25 people. So the member has 50 or 75 people who live in this orbit. Their job, all of their jobs is to make the boss happy, which creates this bizarre dynamic because everybody, even if you're there because you want to effect a certain kind of change in the world, you want to drive a certain kind of politics or help shape the way people think about issues you care about, that's not your job. And you try and tuck it in and you hope that you believe or you agree with your boss, but your job is make your boss happy. And, and that means the members themselves live in this world where all these people and all these, this infrastructure surrounds them to make them make them feel like the most important person on the planet. And it's really interesting when you have multiple members in the same room together because they all think they're the most important person on the planet, even though they're in a room with other most important people. <laughs> the offices themselves have, there's some chunk that focuses on constituent services. So like if you have a problem getting your so social security check or difficulty getting veterans, your veterans benefits or a visa or anything like that, you can call Ed Perlmutter's office or either Senator Gardner or Senator Bennett. And they have a bunch of staff whose job is help you solve those kinds of problems. That's one big chunk. There's another chunk that's focused on legislative and policy work, which is what I did. There's uh, folks who work on media, which is very important to most offices, maybe all of them. And then folks who deal like the sort of the constituent side, so folks who write the letters to, if you write a letter to a member, it's a, it's a real person who writes that letter, it'll be a legislative correspondent, somebody pretty low usually on the totem pole, but they'll write the letter and you'll get a response. It's actually, it is actually authored by a human being as opposed to a machine, I, at least in our office. I don't know about other offices. And then, uh, and then there's some administrative sorts of folks. I worked on the legislative side, and my role was, uh, my title was policy advisor, but I kind of fell, fell in this bundle of positions known as legislative assistants, or uh, LAs. And that basically meant I provided, I staffed the senator at committee hearings. So I would prep them for hearings. I'd help them with questions or talking points or background. Um, I would figure out which hearings I thought he should go to and help him decide which ones to, to make time for. At the hearing, if you ever watch C-SPAN, you always see staffers behind the members. That's, that's the role I played for the hearings I staffed him on, which were the energy or the committees, the Energy Committee and the Environment Committee. And so if, as the member has questions during a hearing, that's part of your job is to help the person get through the hearing. And then so that was one chunk. I wrote a lot of speeches and a lot of talking points. If he spoke on the floor at events to reporters and he needed talking points, that was also an, that's an LA's job. I did a lot of work with constituents, but really focused on folks in my portfolio area. So folks that worked like energy companies, environmental groups, uh, pretty much anybody that was involved in the environment and energy and climate issue areas was part of what I did. And then the, third, the fourth piece, which was actually the most fun, was the stuff I did in Vermont, which was not in D.C. Uh, for those of you who don't know, those are different places. Vermont is a remarkable place, incredibly beautiful, and people are amazing, and lots of people who are, who are really smart and committed to the place and committed to figuring out how to do energy better and do their communities better. And so I spent a lot of time kind of cat herding around how do we raise, how do we, how do we pull together coalitions to raise money to do more cool stuff that's already sort of on top of the uh, lots of cool stuff already happening there. That was the most fun because we actually got stuff done. That didn't depend on Congress to do things. That was about building the right coalitions and then convincing some federal agency, often like the Department of Energy, to write checks so we could do more of those things. 
I'd say overall the hill is filled with really, really smart people who work really hard and accomplish almost nothing. And that's part of why after two years it was time to leave. It's also a place that is, per, there's a really deep pervasive cynicism that you feel it. It's like, it's like in the air. And I think that the, I think there are a bunch of reasons for that cynicism, lots of sources of the cynicism. But that was the other main reason. It was after two years, it was time for me to leave because I, I want to be in a place where we can get, pe- people are here to get things done and make our communities better. And lots of people on the Hill, they, they just live in this sort of orbit of cynicism. And it's like bone marrow deep because the place is so dysfunctional. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's some reasons why I think the place is so so deeply cynical. One is that they exist in this kind of media, this incredibly short media cycle. So everything they're thinking all the time is about uh, is about how to leverage whatever that is for good media or how to avoid bad media. And the cycle, it's not like, it's certainly not a 24-hour cycle anymore. It's more like, like a three-minute cycle or a 10-minute cycle. Things happen and almost in real time, they're posted on Twitter or on Facebook or even on some of the news channels and websites. And that just creates this that drives how people think about what their job is, and, and at, certainly at the member level and all the way through the staff level. They, members have to raise an extraordinary amount of money to, to remain in office. The, um, I looked this up because I didn't know it offhand, and I, I found a 2012 number, so it's going to be a little higher. The average successful congressional race in 2012, the member themselves had to raise $10.5 million. And... I'm sorry, that, that's the Senate race. And in the House, it was close to $2 million. And those numbers are certainly higher in 2014, and it will be even higher in 2016. And that doesn't count the $100 million or so in a Senate race that gets spent by other entities that are not the member themselves. So they spend, uh, I've heard, three to four hours a day raising money. Bernie, is not, Bernie doesn't do that, so I, my point of reference is a little different. He doesn't, doesn't do the dialing for dollars for three to four hours a day, but almost every member does. They go across the street to a campaign or a party office and, and sit on the phone for three hours a day asking for money. And, th- and this money just has this extraordinary effect on how they think about their jobs and think about what they're, cap- what they're able to do and think about what's required to get reelected. They themselves are, are all, almost all quite wealthy. I think in 2014 was the first Congress where a majority of the members themselves were millionaires and the average net worth of a member of Congress, I wrote that down because I couldn't remember that either. It's, oh, I've lost it, but it's something like 800 or 750, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, 8 million, 7.5 or $8 million, the average net worth of a member of Congress. So the members themselves come from a very different place than most people they represent. And then they live in this crazy bubble that I kind of alluded to earlier. They have 50 or 75 or however many people around them whose job is make them feel like the most important person on the planet and, and serve their every whim and desire, you know, in a professional sense at least. And that just does crazy things to your head, even if you're the most grounded person around. And so someone like even, I think we are really lucky here in the 7th Congressional District that Ed is one of the more grounded members of the Congress. He really does have his feet on the ground and is a genuine human being that we all, those of you who know him, at least I assume it's most of you, can relate to in a way that's not like most members. But Ed is a rarity, and, and Bernie's a, even Bernie, you know, they all sort of succumb because they can't help it. Even, I noticed it in little ways, even when I was mayor, that you just, you tend to hear things that reinforce what you already believe, that your friends want to be supportive, all, all of these sort of little things, and it's just amplified in this extraordinary way when you're a member of Congress. The... I don't remember, but it's much lower than that. He owns a house that's like $400,000 and 
He has some income with his wife. We can look it up. Uh, during the break, we can look it up. There are, I mentioned the outside money, just extraordinary amounts of money, and part of the trend we've seen in recent years with the Supreme Court with Supreme Court decision-making is basically to slowly eliminate disclosure requirements and eliminate contribution limits. And so that essentially means, even today, and it will, it will almost certainly get worse unless we change course, that individuals with extraordinary amounts of money can give unlimited amounts and don't have to disclose those amounts. We already know the Koch brothers have pledged almost $900 million in the 2016 presidential cycle. And that, that's, that's the money they've pledged. They could certainly give a lot more that they never that is never disclosed because it's done entirely legally but completely uh, hidden from the view of, of ordinary citizens. And that just has this unbelievably corrosive effect on what happens on the Hill. And then, and then the last piece I'll mention for why I think working on the Hill is so steeped in cynicism is most people out here, like you all, just think Congress is doing a really crappy job. The last poll I saw, which I'm sure is not the most recent, it was a Rasmussen poll from July, I think pegged it at 13% of people in the country who think Congress is doing a good job. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's abysmal, and I'm sure that like attorneys probably rank higher in the public image than members of Congress do. And, and all those things add up to this place that's insulated and, and deeply distorted and cut off from the concerns of ordinary Americans across the country. So why do people hate Congress? I can tell you one reason I hear a lot is that they think members of Congress are lazy. And let me just tell you, that that ain't true. There are lots of reasons why Congress is broken, but laziness isn't one of them. The vast majority of the members work incredibly hard. They work seven days a week. They commute back and forth every single week from D.C. to wherever they live. Ed does this every week coming back to Colorado. So that I don't think that's the answer, at least not for the vast majority of them. There's a very deep sense that members of Congress are corrupt. And I think in the sense, in the sort of, in the sense that most people mean it, I think it's not true. Most members of Congress don't take money and then pledge to do something legislatively in exchange for that money. It happens on occasion, and it certainly happens more at the state level. If you all have been watching, like, like the New York legislature, for example, something like 40 indictments over the last five or eight years. So it, it certainly happens in politics, but I don't think it happens very much in D.C. But there's this extraordinary soft corruption, which is fueled by that money and fueled by the, the ways in which we don't have access to the sources of that money or, or understanding how that money shapes the decisions members make. That's, I think that is very real. But, the, but it is, I think, fair to say, this is to get back to the point I made earlier, that people work really hard on the Hill and accomplish almost nothing, and that drives a lot of the cynicism. And it's, that part is, I think, extremely true. This Congress, I went back, I looked back 40 years of the records. I don't know if they, I'm sure they go further back. I didn't go further, and it probably changes. But for at least the last 40 years, this last Congress, the 113th, with, which ended in, in last December, that Congress... Uh, passed fewer bills than any other Congress in the past 40 years and and completed less legislative activity than any other Congress in the last 40 years. And those aren't the perfect measures of an effective Congress, but they at least they're proxies for, is this a Congress doing something? Um, I think, how much time do I have? I'm at the end, yeah? All right. I want to say just a couple of words about why I think it's broken, and then if, if you'll indulge me, I'll say a few words about how I think we can fix it. And then I'll stop, and you can drink more beer. Thank you. The, I think there are a whole bunch of theories about what's broken, why it's broken. It's clearly broken, in my perspective. Congress does not. It doesn't. Pa- we don't pass bills. I, I don't want to say we, we anymore. I have to break that habit. Congress does not pass bills by and large. The, as I said, the number has dropped. The Congress does not. 
by and large pass spending bills. That's a particular flavor of bill which allocates money to be spent in certain ways to fund all the agencies and programs that we all, that's like all of our touch points to the federal government. And it's, it's extraordinary to me. In eight of the last nine years, the Congress could not agree on spending bills. So they ended up passing what are called the continuing resolutions, which means you get to the very end of the authority to spend money, and the government runs out of money, and on midnight that night, or just before, Congress passes legislation that says, okay, okay, we can't figure this out. We're just going to keep spending at exactly the same levels we've been spending in the last year. Everybody agrees that's a crazy way to budget because nobody likes the thing we have, but the Congress is incapable, by and large, of figuring out uh, resolving differences and passing actual appropriations bills. So that's a second. And third is even the even the simplest, like most administrative, most uh, pedestrian kinds of legislation that used to pass really easily. If all the members of a delegation, like if everybody in Colorado agreed on a boundary adjustment on a piece of Forest Service land, that stuff was easy. And we can't even pass those things anymore because the place is so broken. So here... Here are some reasons why people, why I think it's broken, why people think it's broken, and I think they're mostly all true to some extent. One is the members themselves don't spend much time together, and in the old days, like say in the 70s and earlier, they lived in D.C., their families moved there, so they had lots of social interaction. Now they don't. They spend three days in D.C. or four, and they come back home. I don't think that explains a lot of it, but it's certainly part of it. People building relationships has something to do with it. Redistricting is a huge factor. Uh, The last, uh, lots of people have different ways of doing the math, but when I, the one I looked at earlier today, their conclusion was 50 competitive house districts out of 435 house districts. So 385 where the outcome is, we know the outcome before the election happens. And that means the actual race of consequences, the primary and primaries tend to drive drive candidates to the extreme end of the party. So now we have a bunch of people who are members of Congress who actually believe it's their job, or at least at least take the position that it's their job, that their constituents have elected them to prevent the government from doing bad things. So for them, when things break, it's not a failure. They're, they see themselves, or at least they say they do, as doing actually doing their job as members of Congress. So that's, that's a huge factor, I think, in the, in the gridlock. And, and co- along those lines, compromise is punished. Like most of the time, members who it used to be the case, the sort of statesman kind of model of, of representation, that the great compromisers were the ones that passed bills and we all celebrated it. And now compromise is actually the thing that gets the Koch brothers to throw tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in the direction of your opponent to make sure that you lose your primary and don't come back to the Congress. They all really desperately want to get reelected. That also has a huge, um, a, a huge factor. Filibusters... It used to be the case that to filibuster, you actually had to stand at the podium and talk until you couldn't talk anymore. And now simply threatening a filibuster has the same effect, which is the reason that the number of sort of functional filibusters has exploded, which is part of the reason the Senate does almost nothing. Because on almost any bill, somebody is willing to say, I'm going to kill the whole thing unless I get my amendment or whatever it is. And so the whole thing stops, which is a huge part of why the Senate doesn't pass bills. I also think the money, I talked about that. I also think there's just this very deep lack of courage among most members. They're, they, they're very risk-averse. They like their jobs. They want to keep their jobs. And so by and large, they're not willing to take risks and call out for the kinds of things that they might know or believe are, are necessary, but they're just not willing to expose themselves. So the place is completely broken, I think. And here's what I think the implications are. First off, I think that if you are interested in effecting change, the local level and state level is that is the place where you have the most opportunity to have a real difference. And you all know that here in Golden, 
anybody in this community can run for office and has a decent chance of winning. Anybody in this community can serve on boards that have real real influence over decisions we make in the community through the civic organizations, through through organizations and events like this, there are enormous opportunities at the local level, particularly in a place like Golden, to have a real impact on things you care about. So I think part of the answer is the local and regional or local and state is where the best opportunities are to actually make a difference. But we we still have to figure out how to fix Congress. And the thing that's most striking to me is even though the outcome is totally insane and irrational, all those individuals, I think, by and large, are making decisions that are pretty rational within their own little environment. They're responding to the incentives and disincentives that they're operating within. And they're mostly not making courageous decisions, but they're not making irrational decisions either. And our challenge, I think, if we want Congress to work again, is to change the incentives and disincentives. Just simply replacing the people it doesn't solve the problem because the problem is structural. And I can't there are lots of solutions, lots of proposals for solutions to improve how Congress works and improve representation, improve, improve the health of our democracy, but I can't see how that works without, without getting the money out of politics. I, I don't think there is any solution that isn't overwhelmed by the role that big money plays. And so short of, I, I think the only solutions are things like public financing of elections or, or finding a way through through changes in the Supreme Court or changes in the Constitution to make clear that individuals can make money or can make contributions, but but undisclosed and unlimited sums of money coming from unknown entities, that that is fundamentally corrosive to democracy. So I, I don't know what the exact, what the actual, the specific answer is. I do know that I don't think there is an answer that isn't completely overwhelmed by the role money plays unless we figure out how to tackle the money. And I'll stop there. All right, thanks, Jacob. We want to encourage him to have a beer that Barb got while he was talking. <laughs> um, I bet a lot of people have questions. When I was looking around, I could kind of see questions in your eyes. We're going to give Jacob about a 10-minute break, encourage everybody to go get beer or dessert, have a moment, and then about 10 minutes from now, if it's okay with Jacob, we'll bring him back up, and you all can get your questions answered. All right, everybody. We are going to call Jacob back up and ask him questions. So we've given him a beer. And I think other than that, are you, you ready? So we do have to be out of here by 8, which means we have lots of time, <laughs> except that we do have to have some time to um, clean up and everything. So uh, don't be upset with me when I cut him off. That's going to happen. And we're going to probably ask, um, do about 20 minutes worth of questions and answers. So Jacob, call on whoever you think will ask you the nicest questions. <laughs> Who's got the nicest question here? Yeah, and there. Can you all hear the question, or should I repeat it? This question is: Why don't we have controls on on campaign contributions and campaign spending? And the, and the answer is: We do have some, but we've seen this very steady erosion. The folks who benefit from a lack of limitations on campaign 
spending or campaign contributions have been filing lawsuits over over many years now that have been steadily weakening the laws that govern that. So there are some, but the trajectory is very clear. This Supreme Court, it seems very clear, is on a trajectory to slowly, bit by bit, remove each of those pieces. And even today, the limitations are mostly like ordinary people who give money to candidates. That stuff has real limitations, but that's not where the money's flowing. The money... Right, the money is flowing through these independent organizations that have some limitations, like they can't coordinate with the campaigns, like they can't coordinate, but but that's about it. And so, so no, it's it, we're we're just watching this very steady erosion of the limited boundaries that there are. I'll just kind of work my way across the room. Yeah. So the question is, is there, I guess, is there validity to the claim or argument that money, in some sense, is equivalent to speech or it's a vehicle by which people express themselves and so it should be protected under the First Amendment? There's, there's clearly an argument to that effect, and that's the argument that the folks that have bring, been bringing these lawsuits have most heavily relied on, at least in sort of principle. I, and I, is there an argument against that? Oh, I'm sorry. Is there an argument against that? I, I, I think so. I think most fundamentally... The, the problem is that the absence of, when we treat money as speech, the, the effect is this very, de- it's very deeply toxic to democracy. And I think that the, that, that is a, it is a compelling argument, I think, to say this inter- those are, these are interpretations of what the Constitution means. Those interpretations are, you know, they change over time. It's entirely reasonable for the Supreme Court to say, now that we understand what the implication is, how deeply corrosive this is to a healthy democracy, we need to rethink that relationship. But that, that, this Supreme Court is headed in the other direction. Yeah. I think it's that is I think it is accurate. Certainly in the beginning it was sort of a laugh line. I mean in the same way when Martin O'Malley announced or when the, before he announced the buzz and then when he actually announced he former governor and former mayor governor of Maryland former mayor of Baltimore the same kind of like eye rolling and dismissiveness he his numbers he's never broken out of very low single digits so they the media continues to treat him that way but Bernie's numbers are are actually growing particularly in the early primary early caucus states and and moreover, he's generating crowds of a size that is unmatched by any other candidate. So the media has sort of been forced. I, we did see something of a, like, I think there was sort of a narrative that got, did get a lot of it. The media loved the sort of distru- the sense of disruption. So I think there were a lot of stories about how the crazy socialist is going to challenge Hillary Clinton. But that was more like the theater of the socialist challenging the obvious winner of the, of the primary. And now that he's really gotten traction, that narrative is very different. You see many more... Uh, journalists and commentators 
kind of reassess his... I, I mean, I don't know that many people think he could actually win. I think that's still a hard leap to make because he's up against an enormous, enormously formidable opponent. But the tone, I think you're right, tone's very different. Yeah. That's such and, a, and how many attorneys do we have in the room? <laughs> really none? No, there's a... There's a We're the only ones? Oh, my God. Go ahead. I, I think that's a, it's a really... So the, um, the question is... Did everybody hear that? That's a tougher one to... Okay. You're the, I'm Italian. <laughs> the, the, the question is if... Are the Supreme Court justices, justices themselves guilty of soft corruption in the sense that I meant? And then what does that mean? I think that I don't think so because there really isn't a path. The soft corruption comes because the members themselves have, they've always got something to gain personally by maintaining certain kinds of relationships and taking certain kinds of positions. So the members themselves, for one thing, all, all the ones who want to continue to stay in office, they're all thinking about how am I going to get reelected. And that's very much about how much money, I mean, I talked about the money a little bit. That's very much about how much money can I raise so that I can fend, if I'm in a competitive district, one of the 50 competitive house seats, then I can fend off the other party. And if I'm in one of the not competitive seats, I can fend off a challenge from the, the outside. Uh, and so th they have a lot of incentive to be very friendly toward people that write really large checks. When the Koch brothers contribute, say, $50 million to a campaign, they don't have to say, we, in exchange, we expect you to do A, B, and C. Uh, the members know what is expected of them in exchange. They know if they don't deliver, they're not going to see that money the next time. And the other piece is when, once they're done with their career in the Congress, a huge percentage of them go off and work for the very lobbying firms that, they, that lobbied them and make extraordinary amounts of money doing that. And so there's this deep incentive to maintain those kinds of relationships that they don't have with the rest of us. That I just don't think that's true with the Supreme Court justices. They are lifetime appointments. They don't ever go do other jobs. They don't have to run for re-election. Is it possible? Maybe. But I, and maybe there's like social pressures. or there's. But I think mostly the members of the Supreme Court themselves, they come in with a set of values and beliefs, and those beliefs are reflected in their, in their rulings. I th personally, I, w I wouldn't personally. I think it is fair to say that the decisions that they're making are resulting in a democratic process that is corrupted. But I don't personally think that the members of the Supreme Court themselves are corrupt or guilty of corrupt uh, activities. I think they they, be they have a set of beliefs that are reflected in the decisions they're making. Thank you. You bet, Jim. How did I get the job? Uh, why did I leave his job? Yeah, your job with Bernie. My job with Bernie, and then do I wish I was working with him now? Um, the, I got, the, getting the job was so interesting. I, I finished up my term here, and I was working with a group called Place Matters, and I, wrapped, I kind of wrapped everything up and thought, okay, what next? And I'd never lived in D.C. I'd never lived in a city 
uh, for one thing, and I'd never lived in D.C. and done the D.C. thing and thought, okay, this is it's still it's the second term of Obama's administration. This would be a really cool time to go back to D.C. or go to D.C. and work on energy and climate issues is what I was thinking the most about. And so I started going down the path, the presidential appointment path. The president appoints a huge number of people across, well, in the White House and then across a bunch of other agencies. And I thought I had probably had the best chances then than I would ever have in my life because I my contacts were really good politically just because I had just finished up during my, my, my career, my tenure in public office. So I started pursuing that. It's this incredibly cryptic, crazy, bizarre process that is indescribably slow and inefficient and dysfunctional. And it's crazy because the president has a, there's a clock I don't think there's literally a clock, but everybody who works in the White House, every day they can visualize this clock as how many days they have left until they're done. And they just waste an extraordinary amount of time in this process. So that, that as a sidebar, I don't get why it's so that's so convoluted. But I was slowly working through that process, and we had come up with some positions that when they became... Of when they became vacant, I would be competitive for, so I would get, get in the mix for those. But it was just, it was taking a long time, and it was no guarantee, and I kind of stumbled into the opportunity in Bernie's office, and that was a random conversation with a friend of a friend who had was my predecessor, and we sat down for coffee, and he said, well, the first thing i got to tell you is I'm, I'm leaving my job, and you should probably throw in. And I did, and Bernie, um, Bernie is unusual in so many respects. One of them is, uh, he, I got hired into a, a senior-level legislative role and in almost any other instance the people get hired for those roles are people that have hill experience i i'd never worked on the hill bernie didn't want somebody with hill experience he liked that i came came out of an advocacy background and then on top of that he was the mayor of burlington for eight years by the way i I mentioned he lots of single digit races in vermont where he, he, he just it was sort of an embarrassing outcome he did it i think four times then he ran for mayor and he won the mayor's race by 10 votes and that was kind of the turning point in his political history uh, he he liked me because i i was a i used to be a mayor and it, we got along and i brought something i think he was looking for and it worked out so that's why how i got the job yeah, for sure those those decisions are all his at the lower levels He'll still have a like he'll meet people, but he's not as in, not as engaged. But anybody in a position like mine, oh yeah, I interviewed with him twice. I interviewed with the chief of staff once and him twice. Yeah, he's very involved, um, and that's because that the role that I played was one that he was very engaged in. So I didn't. There's a org chart on paper that I would answer theoretically to a legislative director who answers to the chief of staff and then the then the member. But I I, I were I took direction from him because it, my is, the issues I worked on were the were just big priorities for him. And then you asked why I left. I, I, two years was perfect. I mean, honestly, the that, the things I talked about, just the cynicism of being on the on the hill, and the fact that everybody works so hard and accomplishes almost very very little. I, I can I can give you my list of accomplishments, and I'm proud of what I got done in my two years. It was very, very short and very modest. Um, and then, so about the time I was thinking, okay, two years is about the right amount of time, I got I got poached by this group here in Colorado. They they pitched me on coming back and doing this particular job, which was it's a great job. It got me back home to gold, and it was all worked out. And then, no, I, I don't wish I was on the campaign. I think campaigns are really for people who are much younger than I am. Uh, and, and it's just, it's crazy. You give up your life for... However long that campaign lasts, everybody on the campaign gives up their entire life for that period of time. And I'm back home. I mean, I, I had a chance to come back home, and I took it. Um, but I'm working on this film, so I'm actually I get to spend a lot of time kind of in that orbit, and we shoot a lot on the campaign trail. And so I still get to kind of play there and watch them up close. I just don't have to. I'm not living the campaign lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
That's a great question. And the question is, if if Bernie were to win the nomination, does that kind of automatically see the outcome of the general election to the Republicans? And I don't think so. I think it. I think first of all, it's very. It's unlikely he'll win the nomination. It's a very. He's up against this extraordinarily powerful, a stat, kind of a step Democratic Party establishment with uh, sums of money that he will. Ne- he'll never get close to, and all the momentum and all the sort of rules are rigged against him. And, and that's just sort of how the how the system works. And. So I think his odds are slim. But I, I do. it's not crazy to think he could win. And there's multiple scenarios. Like if Biden gets in, Biden will bleed people from Clinton. And that changes. That, and Biden won't be able to poach people from that kind of left-wing economic populist kind of part of the, of the primary. So th- there are scenarios like that. Or Hillary just implodes. Like the weight of the scandals around emails or whatever else emerges, those things have, have killed I mean, figuratively, killed, they've killed candidacies in the past, and it's not. I mean, she she was the she was the presumptive winner eight years ago, and, and Obama managed. So, like, you never know what's going to happen. So he could actually win if he did win. I think this is the big crazy question: is does the does the thing he did in Vermont, which is focus very heavily on economic issues, that lots of in his words, which I think is right, we are experiencing, we are now experiencing this extraordinary redistribution of wealth from the middle class and the working class to the wealthy. And you can, you can see, it's like, you can't really argue against it. It's, it's very transparent in, in, the, in the economic data. And I think his gambit is he can, that message will engage enough people across the aisle and enough independents, but include, in addition to Republicans, that he can beat what, whoever it is that the Republicans nominate. Because whoever the Republicans nominate is almost, I mean, history suggests at least, it's, it's not going to be, like Mike Huckabee is kind of running on an economic populism story. He's trying to position himself that way. He's not, he's very unlikely to win the Republic. It's, it's likely to be, you know, Rubio or Bush or, I, like it's a pretty small field that are the likely winners. And none of those have, none of those can carry an economic equity message the way Bernie can. So I, I don't really know, but I certainly don't think it's, I certainly wouldn't, uh, rule out the possibility that Bernie could win a general. I think it's I think it's really unlikely. So don't like I'm not here predicting. We, and, and if he does become president, then I'm I'm angling for depart for Secretary of Energy. Just to, you, you all heard it here first. I, I thought about state, which would be cool, and you get to travel a lot. But um, I, so I think it's very very unlikely. But it's not it's not crazy. It's not impossible to imagine him being competitive even in, in a general. I don't think. Yeah. The question is, why do people work on, stay on the hill for, for careers or for really long periods of time? There's something, it's such a good question. There's something, um, 
for one thing, there's something really cool about the, this environment, which is just it's saturated with really smart people. And there's a kind of a pay, even though the outcomes are really uh, like there's a paucity of actual tangible outcomes. Um, the pace is really, it's exhilarating. Things are moving all the time. You feel important. I mean, that's part of the, the sort of the seduction of the place is you are in this position that feel, it feels like you're in a position of power. I don't, for the most part, staff, I don't think staffers really are because the system so overwhelms those most individual staffers. But it kind of feels like you do. And certainly everybody who's outside of it, all the people who come through your office lo- lobbying you as a staffer, to convince your boss to do whatever, they all think you have, you wield influence and power. And that's just, it's totally intoxicating. I think that's part of it. And a lot of people, I think, this was not so true in Bernie's office, but I think in general on the Hill, a lot of people just, they, they love the game. It's a, it's a crazy game. The, the politics are crazy and complex and fascinating and, and really dynamic. And the procedural stuff is really fascinating and crazy and complex and dynamic. And a lot of people just love that kind of, that environment. And they get kind of stuck there. And they just never... They never leave. <laughs> I'll go here and then I'll come back over to this side. Yeah. And just to paraphrase, the paraphrase would be that given Bernie's history and track record in Vermont, that maybe he really does have an opportunity, there really is something there. And I'll just add that that uh, part of, I think, why he has achieved the kind of popularity he has in Vermont is it's very much what you're suggesting. He, he actually got a ton of stuff done. And a, lo- a lot of, he fought the establishment and did a bunch of things like in Burlington, the results of which now everybody in Burlington values and appreciates. And many of those things were, many of those things were cutting edge. Like I, I think Bernie established the first um, city housing trust in the country where the city itself created an affordable housing trust or a housing trust that would buy uh, buy build buildings for 
providing for affordable housing options. So things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, Bernie has this extraordinary track record of getting stuff done in Vermont that is part of, I think, what's propelling the narrative now. Let me, um, let me get folks who haven't had a chance to offer So if, if it's the case that everybody wins as a result of campaign finance reform, then why is there so much opposition? I don't know that I've seen But in general, I think the, the, reason, is, the reason is that the... Here's an example. The, the five... I, Climate change was on my list, by the way, of things I was supposed to talk about in my 20 minutes, and that's another, I'll have to save that for another time. The five largest oil companies in the world, I mean, just, just, just the five largest oil companies, not the other oil companies, not any of the other companies in the value chain, which make extraordinary amounts of money, not, not the gas companies and the coal, just the five largest oil companies in the world made $90 billion in 2014 in profit. And that was, you all might remember, fourth quarter of 2014 was not a good year for oil. So these guys made this, this extraordinary amount of money, and that's the system serves their interest extremely well. They make a huge amount of money. They then invest a huge amount in campaign, uh, in, in campaign contributions, both through the, like direct contributions and then through all of these other avenues and then they spend an even more extraordinary amount of money lobbying and they get the stuff they want so the entities that already kind of control the system there is nothing in it for them campaign finance reform is all downside for them so there's this extraordinary amount of of deep built-in resistance politically just because of who kind of had who's who has the biggest hands on the levers in addition to that we also have a supreme court which itself is a reflection of the politics but to circle back, I, I, think the, I think by and large, the members of the Supreme Court believe the things that they say they believe. And we have a Supreme Court that, generally speaking, uh, s- sees the relationship between money and democracy very differently than, say, uh, you or I do. And those two things together mean it's actually a very, very difficult fight. Do I, we have to cut people off? So, I like the way you said that. Do we have to cut people off? Well, hang on. I have an idea. If I could get about 10 volunteers to help us clean up, I think we could go on for about five or seven minutes. It's a funny crowd because I can tell there's a lot more questions. Would anybody be willing to volunteer to help move furniture and clean up? Oh, we've got lots of... Okay. One, two, three. Okay, I think we have about 10. So, if you all would come see me after this, we'll all clean up really fast. I hope that's okay with staff members. All right, so we can take about three more questions in that case. Hey, we're losing everybody, so let's give Jacob a big hand before everybody disappears. (laughs) But but then for those who who want to stick around for just a few more minutes, we'll let him um, answer just a couple more questions. How about that? Is that okay? Totally. But first we're going to clean up, right? Okay, so so this question was... We know there are 50 competitive seats in the country, and how do I help 
contribute in those races. And I don't know this. I don't know specifically, but in general, in every election cycle, the the Democratic Party organizes a lot of efforts, phone banking for those competitive seats. Even like, I mean, Colorado will have competitive like like. Like Morgan Carroll is running against Kaufman, that that will be a very competitive seat, and she could actually win. So, like, there will be seats here in Colorado. But if you want to help in other races around the country, the party is the best way to plug into those races. Usually, yeah, Steve. Who, who's a better running mate for me? They have Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Steve asked who who would be a better running mate for Bernie than Elizabeth Warren, and honestly, I haven't thought for a moment. I can't even imagine who would be his running mate. I think two white guys is not the right ticket for 2016. It's even worse than that, I think. So the question is, why are so many Republicans running for the GOP nomination? And part of it is they raise money, and then that money, they can, I, I don't know the rules, but I think they can use that money in other races. But I think the much bigger deal is that gives them exposure. That's the path to talk shows, to book deals, to other kinds of, of like income-generating ventures. It just blows up their profile. It's also really... like. If Marco Rubio doesn't win the nomination, that's certainly going to help him in his re-election in Florida for a Senate seat because of the exposure and the. As long as he does a good, as long as he does a good job at you know being the sort of established statesman. I think this is the last question. This is the last question. I have a term limits The question is, what do I think of term limits, and I guess, are they helpful or not? And I, I think, I feel like term limits are one of those things that intuitively feel like a good answer, but don't actually fix the structural problem. And so I think, I don't think they have much effect. I mean, we, and for instance, in Colorado, when we adopted term limits for the state legislature, the Senate and the House, maximum of eight years, that was two terms in the Senate, or four and four in the House, you would expect the result would be, the, the outcome was exactly the opposite of what we expected. The average tenure actually went up. And nobody really knows why. We People suspect it's because people thought, oh, heck, I can only do one more term anyway. I might as well stick it out as opposed to I'm done with this. I'm going to move on. So I, part of it is it doesn't necessarily have that effect on the length of tenure that we might want. But I think more importantly, the power sits somewhere in that system. And if you take, if you, if you, impose term limits on members of Congress and you force them out after some number of terms, that means other people are going to absorb the power that they once had. And probably that's lobbyists. That's certainly what happened here in Colorado. Term limits in Colorado shifted a lot of power to the lobbyists who don't ever leave. They're there for as long as they're there. So they're the ones with all the institutional knowledge. If you, and and we don't, you all may know, we don't give legislators, we don't pay them very much, and we don't give them much of a, of, a, of a staff budget. So they have almost no staff support. So who does all the research for them and who does all the work that they need to understand? It? I mean, it's all the lobbyists. So I think term limits intuitively feels like a 
good idea. But I, this is an example of, a, I think, a, of a, an answer where the money just overwhelms whatever value there might be. It's completely overwhelmed by the, the structural problem, which is about money. Thank you all very much. Have a great night, and I'll stick around. Thank you.